Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Last two uh, times I was preaching, uh, we talked about reconciliation, and I was just going to end it last week, but then I was like, well, I kind of have to do a message on forgiveness, so I'm doing a series on reconciliation, and then before I could get the message on on, uh, forgiveness, uh, this week, out of a number of the conversations over the last couple of weeks, I realized, you know what, I I think our church could use some some biblical, practical advice in a series on reconciliation, just on uh, how to avoid some conflict in the first place, how to mitigate it as Christians. And uh, I was actually inspired. Uh, I've been inspired this past week by a passage in James. And so I'm going to start by reading to you a passage here from James, James chapter three. And it says this, who is wise in understanding among you? Okay, so good question. This is James writing a letter to the church. So it's a question for all of us. Who is wise in understanding among us, among you and among me? Okay, and it's going to be interesting his his uh, explanation of what is wise because it has nothing to do with smarts or theological knowledge, although those are wonderful things, but his, his answer to that question has nothing to do with those things. How much you know about Christianity, how well you know about the Bible does not factor into this passage. So who is wise and, and, and understanding among us here in this church? Well, James is going to start to explain what that is. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Okay? Main point I want you to know right there. Wisdom is not shown by how much you know. When it comes to Christianity, when it comes to following Jesus, it is not measured by how much you know. It's measured by your good works. You see that? By his good conduct. And what kind of works are they? Look at the word meekness in there. In the meekness of wisdom. You want to know what a wise person is in the eyes of God? It's not a smart person. Not necessarily a person. Although smart is wonderful. It's not smart people aren't automatically bad. Uh... But who is a wise person in God's eyes? Someone whose conduct is good and specifically in meekness. He's going to go on. So there's this sort of gentle aspect to a wise person. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. In other words, there was people in this church that James was speaking to that probably had a lot of Bible knowledge and were boasting about it or boasting about some of the things that Christians sometimes boast about. And he says, if you then go out and your actions are fighting and strife and jealousy and ambition, actually, it's not spiritual. In fact, he goes on to say, uh, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Demonic. Wow. Okay. You know, a little over the top, maybe, James, but no. Demonic, right? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But now he's going to get back to the positive side. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Wow. You want to know what wisdom in God's eyes looks like? It's a peaceable person. Okay? Gentle. I mean, we could just spend, wow, you could just spend a whole lot of time meditating on this one passage. Gentle, open to reason full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And I love this last verse. What a promise. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Is that not an amazing promise? A harvest of righteousness. Now, I don't even know what that means totally. Do you? What is a harvest of righteousness? Okay. All I know is it sounds pretty amazing, right? Because we want righteousness. And the connotation here seems to be a harvest of righteousness seems to be not just in my own life, But if I am a peaceable person who sows peace, 
If I am a person who sows peace in my relationships, in my relationships with my children, in my marriage, at work, among my friends, in my extended family, if I'm a person that is sowing peace, I'm actually going to reap a harvest of righteousness, which means actually that there's even righteousness is going to grow in the people around me. Like this is when I sow peace in my relationships, the people around me have a better opportunity to grow in righteousness. That's an incredible promise. That, that really is an absolutely incredible promise. But now I want to point out something specific about this passage, but which is also true in general of the Bible. And I want to just, because it, it's interesting to me what kind of a book this is. Okay? So here we have this amazing promise, harvest of righteousness. I'd love to have a harvest of righteousness in my family, wouldn't you? I'd love to have a harvest of righteousness among the staff here at church. I'd love, and you'd love to have a harvest of righteousness in your business, okay? Well, it tells us here what we need to do. But uh, does it ever irritate you just a little bit that the Bible then doesn't go on to tell us exactly how to do that? Have you ever noticed that? Like we get a one-line amazing promise, harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, and then you know what the next verse is? Chapter four, and he goes on to talk about worldliness. And it's like, oh, let's, oh, James, you're not quite done, okay? Let's have a hundred page, you know, small book that breaks down, okay? This is how you make peace in relationships. But we just get this amazing promise in one sentence. Harvest of righteousness, sown in peace by those who make peace. Wow. And then we just go on and we talk about something else, Okay. And I want to just talk about that just a little bit because it actually teaches something to us a little bit about God and a little bit about our responsibility in Christian life. Um, obviously, there's a few reasons why the Bible, uh, because you'll, you'll, if you've read this at all for any amount of time in your life, you will have quickly realized that it isn't a magical book of instructions that if you just, any situation in life, you just quickly page the right page. Oh, I just do this, 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 and everything turns out. It isn't that. In fact, there's huge chunks of this book, which I love immensely. It's God's word. In fact, part of the reason I love it is because it is like this. There's huge chunks of this book. I don't have to name any names, but things like Leviticus and, oh, there, I named some names. Uh, but there's, there's whole books in here where not only is it not a magic booklet that gives me quick steps to fix my life, but that when we read them, we scratch our heads and go, what on earth is that? So why would God give us a book like that? Why would he give us some of these incredible, incredible promises and then not expand a little more practically on how to do it? And there's a number of reasons. Of course, one reason would be simply because the book, would, it would just get too big, right? I mean, because uh, literally, I mean, that right there, don't glaze over that. If you just start meditating on that and figuring that out, that's amazing promise. There's a lot we could just write in that. How do you actually do that in your life? But if he did that for every promise that the Bible gives, this would be a huge book. So obviously it doesn't work. He'd also have to give advice that somehow works in every culture across thousands of years and across many different cultures. And obviously it's very difficult. In fact, I would say impossible to give that kind of advice that's so specific to so many different kinds of people over time. But there's another reason that God gave us the Bible the way he did. And it has to do with the way he operates and the way he wants us to operate. And I'm going to show you a few passages in Proverbs throughout this message. But let me show you one right here. Proverbs 25, verse 2 is a verse that I found very fascinating for a number of years already. It says this, Proverbs 25, verse 2, it is the glory of God to conceal things. Now, wait a minute. It's the glory of God to conceal things? 
He, he likes to hide. It's like God likes to actually play hide and seek and this is part of his glory. This is actually, when it says that, this is part of what makes him amazing is that he likes to hide things. Now, it's not a bad kind of hiding where he's hiding things so that we can't find them. But it says here, he goes on to say, but the glory of kings is to search it out, which we can apply to all of us as believers today. So it's God's glory to hide something. And then it's our glory as people made in his image to go and seek for those things and to search them and to find them. Okay. And this is part of the interaction and dynamic that goes between God and his people. So he hides things, but not in such a way that we can't find them. He hides them so that we have to look for them. And there's something that happens in us when we go on the search. And part of that search includes prayer, but it's much more than prayer. But as we begin to search, he gives us a promise in his word. And now we begin to pray and search. I mean, he, Jesus has all kinds of verses like this in the Bible, but I think of ask and seek and knock. One of them is praying. And then the other one, something goes along with asking, seeking and knocking that makes the asking powerful. And that is seeking. There's this idea of searching. There's something in it. You see something in God's word and now it's like, whoa, 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 I want that. But it's not just, oh, and God just gave me the three steps and now boom, now it just happens. Now I go on this journey, this adventure of how, how do I get a hold of that and make that a part of my life? And in that journey of the seeking and the searching, that's actually in the seeking and the sweating and the bleeding and the trying, that's where the Holy Spirit meets with us and changes us. And again, Proverbs chapter 2 uh, and I'm going to come back to James in just a moment, but I just want to sit on this just for a moment because this is a bigger point I want to make just about the Bible. And then I want to come back to what this means in terms of reconciliation and some of these amazing, uh, you know, promises about peace and sowing peace and reconciliation in our lives. Proverbs 2 says this, and this is uh, wisdom speaking. So in the, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is sometimes personified and speaks as if, it, as if it's a person. So wisdom says in Proverbs 2, my son... If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. I want you to notice throughout this passage that wisdom is not just something, God, give me wisdom, and then you just get it. It's something you do pray for. You raise your voice for it, but you make your ear attentive to it. It's something you're looking for. It's something you're seeking. You're searching. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it, Remember Jesus in Matthew, uh, uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, ask, seek, and knock. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So it's the glory of God to conceal things, to conceal things like how to have an amazing marriage, to conceal things like how to live a life full of joy in the Holy Spirit. To conceal things like this, to conceal things like, how do I bring peace to a very complicated reconciliation situation? How do I become a peacemaker? To conceal those things, and then it's the glory of us as his people to see that these are hidden treasures, and then to go and seek them, prayerfully to seek them, and to make them a part of our lives. And in that, we are tremendously blessed, and God meets with us and changes us. So that's a huge thing. So... Now, there's many ways to do this, and I love that in Proverbs 2, it does not tell us, again, notice that the Bible gives us the what, but doesn't go too deep into the how. So the Bible, you know, we get this passage in chapter 2, we get super motivated. Oh, I'm going to call out for wisdom. I'm going to seek for wisdom. Now, how do I do that? On to the next thing. So literally, it's just having a heart that's set on getting it however you can. I'm going for it. 
I want to take a hold of this. It's, it's, it's that kind of almost a spiritual violence. I'm going to take a hold of these things and I'm going to do whatever I can to get a hold of them in my life and to seek for them, okay? So there's many different ways. There isn't just one way. But let me tell you one way that is easily accessible to all of us. And for many of us, this would be an excellent way, one more piece in the tool of, of the way we live and in some of our disciplines that will, is an amazing way, helpful way for many of us, not everyone, uh, but very helpful in terms of seeking and searching in terms of Proverbs 2. And it's called reading. That's deep. I heard someone just say, wow. I, uh, let me just, we're just going to park here for just a minute. Um, and I'm not just talking about reading the Bible. That is the start, but I'm talking about much more than that. When I say reading, I'm not specifically talking about the Bible, actually. I'm talking about something in addition to the Bible. A number of years ago, I don't know if my mom still does it. I'll have to ask her after this message now, but a number of years ago, uh, my mom had this discipline. Uh, those of you who know my parents, of course, Pastor Ray and Fran, Church Renewal now, uh, pastors here at this church for many years. But, um, so she had this discipline years ago where she would start her devotional time every uh, morning by reading a chapter of a good book. Now, I don't know if she still does this, but she did it for some time anyway. And, uh, and when I say she would start her devotional time by reading a, a chapter of a good book, I don't mean a, a John Grisham book or a Mary Higgins Clark, okay, or something like that. I don't know whether you think those are good. If you don't, please don't send me an email. I don't either. She must. But... Uh, um, but anyway, I don't mean like a fiction book. I mean like she would read a chapter of a book in terms of personal growth or walk with God. So she might read a chapter book about prayer or about leadership or about, you know, relationships or love or forgiveness or whatever. There's all these topics where the Bible speaks on things that we need to grow in. She would read a chapter a day of a, of a book on something like that. And I remember her telling me once, because she had done the math, and uh, she had figured to herself... If I would do a chapter a day, you know, and if you do devotions five days a week or something like that, that'd be five chapters a week. That's like 250 chapters over the course of a year. That's like 15 or 20 books where you are studying and learning about how to apply some of the biblical principles to your life and, how, and, you're, and you're growing as a person. Well, that's actually pretty incredible and doesn't take a huge amount of time. If you, if you break it into bite-sized chunks like that, uh, it's not a huge amount of time, and it's actually a huge investment in your mind, which we know has to be transformed in order to be renewed. So, and this isn't the only way to do it, but it's part of the way to do it. And uh, so I thought, you know, that's kind of neat. And over time, now I don't, I don't do it the same way as she did, or maybe still does, I don't know. Uh, but for me, I'm just one of those guys, it's hard for me to be very rigid in my devotions, and for me, a chapter a day is actually too much for me to apply it to my life. But one of the habits I've gotten into for a long time is uh, once or twice a week, I actually, for my devotional time, I have with my, I, I have a, a book on something, and I'll show you just a couple of examples uh, in just a moment, but uh, I'll have a, a, a good book on something, again, like something that's helping me grow or understand the Bible more or grow as a person or character or whatever. And then I read a chapter, but now I'm not just reading, like at bedtime sometimes, you know, people will read good books. But you're not actually applying it to your life. But because I'm doing it through my devotional time, and then I'll take my devotional time, and I'll actually journal. What am I learning? How am I going to apply this to my life? And I'll actually take time. And if I do that once or twice a week, I'm really actually learning stuff that I can retain, and you actually see yourself begin to grow. Okay? Now, let me just show you a couple of examples of things you could do. Just as examples, because remember, and the point of this is, is not, again, this isn't a law, this isn't a rule. Um, the point is, Proverbs says that we are to seek. It's God's glory to conceal some of these hidden treasures. It's our glory. 
there's a hidden treasure. I'm going to look for it. That means it's going to take some effort on our part in terms of seeking, understanding, learning. Okay? And actually, I will just say this. For some of your personalities, this will make your devotional time, is, will be helpful to making your devotional time come alive. For some of your personalities, it won't at all because you just don't like to learn. And that's okay. You are awesome at some other things that I am not good at. But for people whose personalities is anything like mine, my devotional time actually gets stale when I stop learning. So it's just part of how I love God. It's part of how, how I connect to God. And some of you will be the same, no doubt. And some of you will be different. That's fine. But some of you, if you would just add into your devotional time sometimes periods of time where you're actually learning something, it will excite your mind, which will excite your heart, if you're anything like me. And actually, your devotions will come alive because you'll be applying things and seeing things change your life. And it takes a little bit of work, but that's what Proverbs tells us, is it will take a bit of work to grab a hold of the treasures that God has for you. So for example, one, one uh, question that I regularly get often and will always get, as long as I'm a pastor, is I get many people asking me, they're doing in their devotions, they're reading through the Old Testament, and then I'll get an email. I'm reading in the Old Testament right now my devotions, and how do I explain why some of these terrible things happen? And it sure seems like God is making these things happen. Now, here's one of the things. If you want your devotional time to come alive, why not do some seeking and reading and learning so you can make sense of that? So one of the books that I often recommend, and I'm just going to recommend it right here, is a book by Paul uh, Copen, and it's called Is God a Moral Monster? And it's, and it's making sense of the Old Testament God. If you're in the middle of doing your devotions on the Old Testament, why wouldn't you buy yourself a book like this? We do have it in the, in the library, but we don't have 3,000 copies, so whatever. First come, first serve. Probably already gone from last night, okay? <laughs> but do you think it's maybe worth 20 bucks to invest or get an audio book or whatever? And once or twice a week, as you're reading your devotions, or maybe you do it every day, you're more like my, my, what my mom used to do. Well, however you want to do it, don't, you don't need to be overly rigid or anything. But you read through this book, and then what will happen is you say, but... It's only devotions if I'm reading the Bible. Actually, when gifted people who are made by God to help explain the Bible, you read those things, it makes the Bible come alive, you're actually honoring the Bible more. And it's absolutely super helpful. So why not go searching? And what's God going to speak to you more through the Old Testament? And what are you going to learn about God when you do some things like this? So I think for some of us, we need some new habits. And even as we speak about reconciliation, a lot of us can use a lot of work in some of these areas. So now let me just tell you, so just one more example, and this one's going to tie into some more of what we've been talking about in this series. Um, but uh, a book I've been reading over the last two months, uh, LaDon gave it to me first, and, but a bunch of our pastors here at church have been recommending it. And, uh, and it certainly has informed me a little bit as I was been thinking about this series. But a, a couple of months ago, and like I said, I, I take my time going through these books because I'll just do like a chapter or two a week. And then I, I journal about it and how am I applying this? And I try to apply it to my life before I read the next chapter. Um, but a book I've been reading that has been absolutely phenomenal on marriage is DNA of Relationships for Couples. Okay. Now there's also another one that's just, uh, that's not specific to marriage. This one is actually written in story form. It's absolutely amazing. And it is, you've got godly men who are actually trained in relationships. And you know what the amazing thing to me was as I read this book is you and I don't even know what we don't know. Deep. So you think, and you know what the other thing I've noticed in life is good is the enemy of great. So uh, your, your spouse and you aren't fighting all the time and you're mostly happy. Well, all good. Why would I read anything on marriage? 
because we're not, it's like as human beings, we only are motivated to learn when we're already in the water and drowning. Give me a book or a counselor, gotta help me. But you don't even know what you don't know. What if good could be awesome? What if a slightly boring marriage could be amazingly passionate? And are there people gifted by God out there who have gone deep into these things and studied and said, what makes a relationship really hum and work? And you say, but again, is that really devotional if I do that kind of reading in my devotions? Let me show you Ephesians 5. Any of you husbands ever read Ephesians 5? Most important verse out there in terms of husbanding. Husbands, love your wives. That's big. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now again, this is another amazing, amazing command in Scripture. It's incredible. And do you see again how little how there is there? How do you do that? Guys, do you actually have any idea how to do that? Okay, do we actually know? Because all Paul tells us in terms of the how is do it like Jesus did. So are you going to get crucified for your wife? No, probably not. Highly unlikely. So how are you going to love your wife like Christ loved the church? Do you have any idea? Some of the basic foundational principles? You say, well, we have a good marriage. What if you could have an even better marriage? Or what if you have a struggling marriage and you could have a good marriage? And what if there are actually people out there that God has gifted that their whole job is to help people's marriages improve, do you think you could have something to learn from them? Proverbs said, it's the glory of God to hide some things and it's the glory of people to go and search it out. So you know, the last couple of months as I've been reading that book, I don't consider myself to be not reading the Bible, I consider myself to be doing some Ephesians 5 reading every time I read a chapter. Because why would I just read this passage and then just move on if I haven't done anything? You know what's the amazing thing? After a couple of months, I can actually see measurable changes in my life where I have changed my behavior. And because I've changed my behavior in accordance with what I'm learning, I'm living and experiencing more of this. The glory of God to hide things, the glory of people to go and find those things and be changed as we seek and as we search. So again, why are we talking about this in the first place? James chapter 3. We go back there, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay? So um, we want to sow peace. Now, how do we do that? And again, there's many things you can search out. And again, some of you, if, if you don't like to read or there's reasons why you can't read, that's not bad. There's other ways to learn. There's other ways to seek and to search. I'm not saying that's the only way. I was just giving you one way. But the point is, we don't just read this verse and then move on. We try to figure out, how do I do that? And there's lots of things you can access. But let me just finish this message by giving you two practical things. How do we sow peace? And these are not the only two things. These are maybe not even the most important things. But these are two things, two key things that we can do if we want to reap more of a harvest of righteousness in, in us and the people around us. How do we sow more peace into our relationships? 
Okay? So let me just give you two very practical things. Because the Bible doesn't go into depth a lot about how to do it, but the more we search out the how, the more we honor the what of what the Bible actually says. And so one key is we need to learn to communicate our expectations more clearly. This seems so simple and so practical. It's almost like, why would you even have to say that in church? Okay? But the fact of the matter is, if you would truly examine a lot of the conflict in your life, doesn't matter where, whether in your marriage, whether with your kids, uh, at work, uh, you know, in business, all these different places, if you would look at a lot of the conflict in your life, do you know where a lot of the conflict comes? Not all, but a lot of the conflict in our lives actually comes from unmet expectations. That's why you're upset. Have you ever noticed how most relationships don't start with conflict? Because then you wouldn't have a relationship. You don't shake hands with someone on a deal and be like, oh, I really dislike you and I can hardly wait to fight with you more. <laughs> if you felt that way to the person, you wouldn't shake hands with them on a business deal. Right? Isn't that true? You don't start a marriage, I hope. You don't start a marriage by fighting, oh, I dislike you and you drive me crazy, let's get married. No. <laughs> Relationships start with hope, otherwise they wouldn't start at all. They start with hope and then they degrade into something else. And one of the biggest reasons is because I expected something here and you expected something here and those expectations haven't been met and that's why we are upset. It's really very, very, very basic and very simple. If you really boil it down, even some of the most complicated problems often boil down to, I expected you to do this and you expected me to do this and those things didn't get met, that's why we're now upset, okay? And so we haven't learned. And of course, this can happen in so many ways. And, and LaDonna and I have, have many uh, you know, examples, and some have shared before. But in terms of, you know, even when you have two people who have committed their lives to each other, when they can misunderstand each other so insanely, of course, it's going to happen in our other relationships. I, I mean, I always, one of the things I always think back to early in our marriage is the two of us were actually convinced that the other person loved camping when both of us actually hated it. How does that even happen? And I remember we were asking for certain gifts and we got expensive sleeping bags that we still have. Our kids get, have amazing sleeping bags. Whenever they do a sleepover, they have the most amazing sleeping bags. We got expensive sleeping bags. We got a Coleman stove. We got all kinds of amazing stuff. And we had been married like two years already. And I remember the one time, so we had all this nice camping gear and uh, LaDon's telling tell me, okay, what about this date? Let's go like this. And she was planning out some camping thing. And finally, it had just boiled up in me to this place. I'm like, you want to know something? I don't really like camping. And she's like, what? Neither do I. <laughs> so what have we been doing the last couple of years? Well, I thought you liked it. Well, you were a tree planter. That's why I don't like it. And I thought you liked it. Your family grew up camping. Well, I just, I mean, why would anyone want to sleep in a tent? Like we actually pay money to go sleep in a tent. That's insanity to me. Okay? But I know some of you love it, so that's great. God bless you. Keep doing it. Leave the hotels open for the rest of us, right? <laughs> but, so, now that can happen. I, I mean, I think of another story. Uh, years ago, uh, in, our, in our basement, in our old house, uh, you know, putting a clock up on the wall. And most of you are like, well, how is this even a story? Like, putting up a clock up on the wall takes most men, you know, 15 or 20 seconds, okay? But for me, this is a pretty big deal because I wasn't hiring it out. I wasn't contracting this out. <laughs> So 
I'm like, I had, I had a picture in my mind that made sense to me of where the clock should go. So I asked her, where should the clock go? But I already had this preconceived picture. You ever have that? It's called an assumption, right? And we all carry around assumptions. It's not even bad to have assumptions. You couldn't function without assumptions. You'd have to think through every single choice or word you ever said. We have to have assumptions in order to function. And so every one of us comes into marriage, we come into business with all kinds of assumptions based on how our experiences in life. You know, like you grew up in a home where, where mealtime just kind of happened whenever or wasn't always done together. Another person, it was always at 5.30 sharp and mom played a certain role. She always did the cooking and dad always did this and dad always fixed things and you have all these different things. Now you just get married and you just bring all of that with you. And if you never learn to look inside and see what are your expectations and to communicate those things with your spouse, how are you ever going to become a person with a, who's sowing a heart and reaping a harvest of righteousness because you're going to constantly be upset at each other. And the same happens at work with bosses and employees. You're mad at your employee, but you never, you never actually gave them a very specific plan. And we haven't always been good at this even at, at church. I have to kind of say that because we have staff here. So we're getting better if you know, but anyway, don't quit. Um, but if you haven't, if you haven't given them a clear plan, this is what you are responsible for. This is what we want you to do. How can you get mad at them when they don't do what you were thinking inside? Because how does anyone read your mind? So anyway, I asked LaDon, you know, what, you, where do you want the clock? But I had a picture. So when she said the words, the words went into my preconceived picture. And then I asked her again, so you want it in such and such a place? Yes. I went and put the clock up, said, hey, can you come down and take a look at the clock? She comes down and, she, and the first thing she says is, why'd you put it there? <laughs> and I'm like, what? Mind blow. I thought you twice about this. But she had a picture, I had a picture. And the pictures were different. And if we don't know how to talk those things through, so, I mean, the same is true. It happens in, not just in marriage, it happens everywhere. So it happens all the time. And by the way, I, I sometimes hear people say, I, I, I've heard this a number of times. People say, you know, business people in Steinbach fight a lot. To which I say, you haven't traveled a lot, have you? <laughs> Did you know that business people everywhere fight? Because people are human everywhere. People in Steinbach, we're not magically somehow so unique in the world that there's certain things only we do that nobody else does. You go to Latin America, you go to Asia, you go to Africa, and people fight there too. Business people fight. Anywhere where people do business, anywhere where people get married, people fight. It's a human condition. And most of it is based highly in this, in different ways, okay? So it is true that lots of business people in Steinbach fight because they're human, just like the rest of us. And lots of Christians in Steinbach fight in business and at work, just like lots of non-Christians do. And the point isn't that we're ever going to get to a place where there's no conflict. The point is that as followers of Jesus, we want to be people who are reaping a harvest of righteousness, so we have to grow in this thing of sowing peace. So, you know, person A shakes hand with person B, and of course, they liked each other when they shook hands, but person A is thinking, oh yeah, totally, this will get done by fall, and the other guy's thinking, this is going to get done by summer, but they don't actually necessarily say it, because it's months off, and it'll just happen, and then it doesn't, and now they're mad, and now something else goes wrong, and they didn't actually make that clear, and the next thing you know, you have people who are brothers in Christ who don't like each other. It's really not that surprising, and it's actually not that people are evil. Although I do pray and hope, because it's not just one or two, it's one or two dozens constantly going on at any time in a community like this or a church like this. 
is that people will actually stop and drive deep into Jesus and say, okay, harvest of righteousness, harvest of righteousness. So what are we going to do now to not just read that verse and move on? What are we going to do? God has concealed a treasure here, a harvest of righteousness. What am I going to do to search and to find that? So just as a starter, just to get you thinking, some things to think about. This could be, uh, and these are very general questions. Uh, I'm going to show you four W's. There'll only be three on the screen at first, but I'll, I'll put a fourth one up there too. But there's the who, the what, the when, and the wrong. And these kinds of questions can help, whether in marriage or whatever, these are very general, but there's much more you can learn and read on these things. But some assumptions to clarify, just to get you started. Who? When you are going into, whether you're going to work for someone or you're going to do some work with them or, or whatever it is, you're asking your kids, but who's responsible for what? Who's the final authority on one? Who makes the final call? Did you actually talk that out? Oh, that's way too hard, way too complicated. What, kind of the way I feel is if it's too hard for you to work out clarity before you shook hands, then maybe it's actually not worth getting mad about when it goes south afterwards. But if you want to have the right to be upset, then you need to do the hard work and take personal responsibility to try to clarify what are we going to do? Harvest of righteousness. It's going to take a little work. What? What exactly are you going to do? What am I going to do? How much will this cost? I'm sometimes boggled by how these things are not discussed. Okay? What kind of service quality am I expecting? Like, if I'm going to end up yelling at you three months from now, that means I had a preconceived notion of what I was expecting. What if we stopped, even the idea of writing these things down ahead of time, even in your journal while you're devotioning, having your devotion done, whatever, before you do make a decision with someone else, will help you to ask questions and to look inside and say, oh, I actually do have some expectations. When? By when will you do what? And how often? Why not write it down? I'm not talking saying you have to have a contract for every single thing or you have to have lawyers, but just for you to think it through, to have a job description at work, to, to think this through. A fourth W to think of is, is the, the W of wrong. What happens if things go wrong? And again, people often don't like to think about this because otherwise you wouldn't shake hands. So even the idea that it could go wrong is kind of scary. But let's all face it. Things do go wrong. So why wouldn't we talk about this in advance? What happens if you miss a deadline? What happens if you can't pay? How will we resolve conflict? That's a great one to talk through in a marriage. How do we, okay, so when I'm upset, you're upset. I mean, you actually have to have discussions in your marriage. How do we resolve conflict? So do you, you know, am I allowed to blow my stack and yell for 10 or 15 minutes? Should I slam the door and run away? Like in a calm moment. Now you don't lay these ground rules while you're mad, right? Do this in a good moment. Maybe not in a super good moment, because then you might ruin the super good moments. So you kind of do it in a medium moment. And then you set the ground rules for what happens in a terrible moment, right? So, uh, but anyway, how will we resolve conflict? What's the exit strategy? That's maybe not one you really talk about a lot in marriage. What's our exit strategy? Uh, if this thing goes sour, right? But these are, actually talk about it. Clarity. And a harvest of righteousness. Can you imagine... If we had more people, married people, and employees, and employers, and partners who actually were searching for the hidden treasure of peace and that harvest of righteousness and how to be better at this and communicate better, it'd be amazing. Amazing. This brings up a second thing 
This is, the, this is my last point here, and that is taking personal responsibility. So now you are in the conflict. Now what? How do we mitigate this thing? And I think one of the key points is taking responsibility. Now, when I say taking responsibility, there's different kinds. Certainly, that would include taking responsibility for what you did in the lead up to the conflict. If you did anything, it's not always 50-50. Lots of conflict is 80-20, 40 100-0 even, right? Okay, so it's not about forcing yourself to feel guilty about something you didn't do. The point is, now you're in the conflict. The most important thing for you to do when you're in a conflict is to now take personal responsibility for what you are going to do going forward. If you don't do that, you know what many human beings naturally do, and it's not because you're bad, it's just because many of us have not been shown a different way, is we become like, we become help, we feel like we're helpless. And the whole thing is out of our control and there's nothing we can do, we're totally at the mercy of the other person. When you have that feeling in a conflict, you're going to make the conflict worse. And it'll just keep bubbling forever and ever and ever and you won't ever be able to get out of it. The fact of the matter is, that in a conflict, you always have options. Even if you don't like the options, you always have options. Because the Holy Spirit is in you, and the Bible very clearly says something. It says that you will give account on Judgment Day for what you did, not what other people did. Which means if the Holy Spirit's in you, and you're going to give account for what you did, it's, you don't have to be able to control the other person's responses. Now that you're in the conflict, you can only control you. So what are you going to do to move forward in this conflict and out of this conflict. Because even if they won't join you in solving the conflict, you can move out of it on your own. So what are your options? Because you say, I don't feel like I have any options. Well, let me just, I mean, we've been, these are just quick. Let me just show you three options. First of all, as we've been talking about in this series, you can pursue reconciliation. You can find someone to help you get reconciliation with the other person. You say, tried that already, they didn't want it. And this is where people break into Helplessness. See, I can't get reconciliation because they won't do reconciliation. You still have lots of options. I don't know what they all are because every situation is totally different. But if they won't find reconciliation, maybe some of your other options aren't what you would have hoped, but you still have options and you have choices you can make. So the second thing, your second option is to go talk to someone really wise and godly and get them to help you, give you advice, what are your options going forward? If you're in a very difficult marriage and you ask your spouse, let's go see counseling together because we need counseling, and your spouse says, no, you're actually not helpless. You can go see a counselor by yourself, and your counselor can help you see what kinds of boundaries and things you can do to be healthy yourself, even if your spouse refuses to get healthy. You're not helpless. You want to know what the, one of the most common themes in all of the book of Proverbs is? See if you can spot it. Proverbs eleven fourteen: where there is no guidance, the people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. <laughs> Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 20, verse 18, plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance, wage war. Notice any commonalities here? For by wise guidance, you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Whether it be a marriage a uh, business thing, uh, a, a work thing, an extended family thing. There are people out there who are gifted by God and can help you. So you go and you get outside help and you don't just stay on your own and feel helpless. 
God has given you the power to choose. Okay? Which brings up the third option, which we talked a little bit about last week, which is that actually as Christians, whether in business and sometimes even in marriage, hopefully for the purposes of reconciliation, but separation is an option. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 18, you are not helpless in toxic and destructive situations. There may be a temporary separation with the hopes of reconciling. In some extreme cases, it might need to be permanent. But separation is an option in any kind of partnership. Look at Matthew 18, verse 17 and 18. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, remember what Jesus said, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other, in other words, there is a place to break off the relationship. Now, of course, in none of these things, remember Proverbs, in abundance of counselors, you don't make big decisions like this without getting wise counsel. So if separation is an option, and it is, you go get help to do it in the most godly, fair, amicable way possible. Okay? That's the goal. Okay? So, in all of this, Okay, so there's your options. You can pursue reconciliation. If that person refuses, go get wise counsel as to what to do. A third option, sometimes it might come to a place where there needs to be a breaking off of the relationship, whatever the kind of relationship is. Get wise, godly expert counsel as to how to break it off in the most godly, amicable, and fair way possible. That's the goal. You always have options. Okay? Now, in all of this, there's one last thing, and this is where I'll finish. Luke 18. In all of this, Pray. And he, Jesus, that's Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they had always to pray and not to lose heart. By the way, I want you to notice it's both and. When you are in difficult uh, conflict situations, the answer is not just to pray and it's not just to get wise counsel. It's both. Proverbs says, go get as much wise counsel as you can. And Luke 18 says, pray. And Matthew 7 says, ask, seek, and knock which is the praying and the searching and the getting help and all that all together, that's when it's powerful. Okay? So mix prayer with doing and getting help. That's awesome. That's, that's when the Holy Spirit can really work in a situation. Verse 2, he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. You know what I love about this parable? I mean, we often quote this parable about prayer, but I want you to notice here specifically that this is about prayer in the context of this series on reconciliation. It's about justice, right? Give me justice against my adversary. Verse 4, for while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what that unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, we find faith on the earth. If you will take that difficult situation and you will commit to praying for it persistently and getting wise counsel and seeking and searching to make good choices, when you put those things together, God is going to do some incredible things in your conflict. Sometimes you're going to get the miracle of reconciliation itself, and sometimes you're going to get the miracle of a healthy life that is safe from someone very toxic that refuses to repent and do right. But either way, God is going to protect and answer and give you justice.
Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? I want to just pray for you, and then we're going to sing to Jesus. A beautiful song about how much we need him. Lord Jesus, I pray for every person who is mired in a difficult conflict situation. First of all, that you will give them hope. There is hope. They can move forward. This conflict does not need to go on forever. I'm praying, Lord Jesus, for the miracle of reconciliation. There's a bunch of people here who are desperate for reconciliation, that you would bring reconciliation into their lives. Lord, I pray that you would protect the widows and the orphans, those who are helpless in toxic relationships, Lord, that you would protect them and that you would give them wisdom and that they would be safe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.